Not long ago, there was a story about a mentally challenged teenager who was captured and abused by other teens. Now, the story was heartbreaking on many levels, but part of what I found so sad about the story is the way the other teens took him captive. From what I read, a teenage girl that he somewhat knew lured the boy into a building where they held him captive. Since he sort of knew her, he trusted her. She pretended to be his friend, uh, and when she and her real friends got him, they took him captive and they began to do all of these kind of terrible things in order to abuse him. As tragic as that is, what I thought about in the study this week was that this Satan does something similar to people all the time. Not that he takes people captive, he takes them into his snare to make them do his will so that he can steal, kill, and destroy in their lives. Now, as with the girl above, Satan uses deception to trap people. He knows that if he just comes up and says, hey, come and let me take you captive to do my will so I can still kill and destroy in your life, we'd all say no. No, thank you. And, and since truth will not work, he uses deception. Now, while his deception will vary from person to person, I think there is at least one constant in all of the deception that's summed up in a quote I read several years ago. And it said, the devil doesn't come in a red cape and pointy horns. Rather, he comes as everything you ever wished for. Right? Satan snares us by appealing to our fleshly desires. We're snared by the stuff that we really kind of already want to do. And that's why we're so easily snared and why it's difficult to escape the snare. Part of Satan's deception is to convince us that we cannot actually escape once we've been taken Captive, But that, like everything else, is a lie. And while it may be difficult to escape Satan's snare, it definitely is possible. It's not what we're going to do is look at how we can escape if we have been taken into the snare of the devil. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 is where we're going to start. That should be on page 915 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I might ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. 2 Timothy 2.23 But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be patient, or be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so they may know the truth, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Title of the message tonight is Escaping the Snare of the Devil. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you tonight for the opportunity that we've had to worship you in song, to, to sing about the truths, Lord, that we are redeemed, and, and Lord, that we should love to proclaim it. We thank you, Lord, that you have loved us and you have sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you, God. For the privilege of being able to study your word, to, to look into it and to learn from it, Lord, to know that your Holy Spirit would come and he would be our teacher and he would open our ears and our hearts to receive your word. And we ask, Lord, that he would do just that tonight. Father, help us to lay aside the cares of this life that we may have brought in. Father, guard this time against anything that would distract us from hearing what you have for us from your word. Let your Holy Spirit open our ears and open our hearts that we would receive your word. And God, if we have been taken captive by the devil, then Lord, use this tonight to help us escape that snare and begin to live in the freedom that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Fill me tonight 
with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And let me speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, last week we started this. And what at that time was going to be a a two-week series, but it's not going to be a three-week study. By trying to answer four questions about escaping the snare of the devil and what Paul talks about here. But the first, we looked at two of the questions last week. First, what is the snare of the devil? But the snare of the devil, the way Paul defines it here, is when someone has been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Now we looked at last week that there were several ways that people could be taken captive by the devil to do his will. One would be living in a lifestyle of sin. One would be blinded by spirit, blinded about spiritual truth. Another would be living under the weight of condemnation. And another one would be uninvolved in Jesus' church. This isn't a, a, a long and definitive list, but it is some things that we see in Scripture that Satan wants to do in the lives of people. So if someone is taken captive by the devil to do his will, those are some of the things he would do. A second question we wanted to answer was, how do we end up in, this, in, the, in the snare of the devil? Right? We saw from Ephesians 6, from 2 Corinthians 2, that Satan uses his wiles and strategies to deceive us. Right? He wants to trick us. And what he wants to trick people to do is to choose something other than God's way as our way and thus end up in his snare. Right? Anytime we believe something contrary to what God has said, we are falling for the wiles of the devil and we are heading into his snare. Anytime we do something other than what God has said ought to be done, we are falling for the wiles of the devil and we are ending up in his snare. And as we've said, what makes this so difficult is that we often want to believe or do what is contrary to what God has said. Because these things appeal to our sinful nature. They appeal to the part of us that is kind of in rebellion against God. And the way that we avoid ending up in the devil's snare is that we surrender everything to the Lordship of Christ. Like Paul said to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Right? And, and Paul put it in an either or. Either we surrender all things in our life to the Lordship of Christ, or we will make provision for the flesh. But right? any area of our lives that we do not surrender to the Lordship of Christ, that is an area where we will eventually make provision for our flesh And that is an area Satan can use to snare us because we want to make provision for the flesh in that area. Now, we were going to answer the last two questions tonight, but we're only going to get to one of them. And that is, how do we escape the snare of the devil? But if we have fallen into the devil's trap, we have been taken captive by him. How can we possibly escape ourselves? I think there are at least four actions that we have to take to escape the snare of the devil. Right, the first one is accept responsibility. Now, accepting responsibility for our lives is huge. Right, we live in a society of irresponsibility. Right, nothing is ever anyone else's fault. We blame, uh, we blame society. We blame the government. We blame our environment. We blame our heredity. We blame our parents. We blame our spouse. We blame the devil. We may even blame God. And what it ends up being is that virtually nothing that we do that's wrong or anything that ever happens to us in our life is ever our fault. But the rea- what we say is we are then thus the victims in the tragedy of life. Right? We have a, a victim mentality. And really, 
I think our culture at large seeks to impose this upon us. But our culture wants us to have a victim mentality. Because if we have a victim mentality, then they can tell us what's acceptable, what's right, how we should act, and we're going to buy into it because we're victims. How else should we act but other than the way that they tell us to act? But if we are ever to escape the devil's snare, if we are going to live free of the devil's snare, as believers and disciples of Jesus Christ, we must reject the victim mentality. And the opposite of the victim mentality is accepting responsibility. Rather than embracing a victim mentality, we must accept responsibility for our part in falling into the snare of the devil. Right? We, We have to accept that we fell in there by decisions of our will. But at the same time, we must accept responsibility to get ourselves out. Right? Because while God helps, make no mistake, we do not do anything as believers in our own strength and in our own power. But there are things that we must do. Right? God empowers our effort, our action, not our inaction. So if we are to escape the snare of the devil, we must accept, one, I had a part to play in getting snared, and two... I have a part to play to getting unsnared by this. But now, and I'm just mostly in this part focusing on accepting responsibility how we got there. Because no disciple of Jesus Christ ever has to be taken in by the snare of the devil. We never have to be if we're believers in Jesus Christ that have been born again or indwelt by the Spirit of God. Scripture teaches that you and I as spirit-filled, spirit-led disciples of Jesus Christ, can reject the deception and temptation of the devil by which he is trying to ensnare us. Now, if we have embraced a victim mentality, that's a tough pill to swallow, but it's still one that we must swallow if we want to get out and stay out. If we are snared, Right? And, and this is, again, only for believers. If a believer in Jesus Christ is snared by the devil, it is only and always because we have chosen to make provision for the flesh rather than surrender our lives to the Lordship of Christ. Some would say, well, how can you make a statement like that with such certainty that we never, we always make a decision because of what Scripture says? But no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. But from this verse, and this is just one of many, I can say with complete certainty that there is no deception and there is no temptation that can ever overcome you or me or any other disciple of Jesus Christ. The promise of that verse is, one, we are never overtaken by the temptation. So, first, well, let me break it down into several things. First, no temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. One of the ways that we tend to justify 
giving in to these things is, well, you don't understand. The way I'm tempted, it's stronger. I mean, it's just overwhelming. You would never understand the kind of temptation I face, the, the way that I feel the pull to it. But the point of Scripture is, none of us are unique in that. Now, we may not all be tempted by the same things, but we are all tempted. Right? And so, you or me, we do not have a temptation to sin that's stronger than anyone else's temptation to sin. Right? So it's common to man. But with each temptation, what God is, He is faithful to make sure that we will not be overtaken, that there is a way out. So one, our temptation is not unique. And two, there is always a way out. We are never backed into a corner where the only options are believe a deception, give in to a temptation, make provision for the flesh. There is always a way in every moment of temptation, in every deception from Satan, for believers in Jesus Christ to surrender to the Lordship of Christ and escape that temptation. So what that means is every time we make provision for our flesh and fall into the snare of the devil, it is because we have willingly chosen to make provision for our flesh instead of surrendering to the Lordship of Christ and looking for the way of escape that God has promised us. This is important. We must accept responsibility for our spiritual condition. Whether we are free or whether we are snared, we are responsible for that. God has given us all things we need for life and godliness to live the kind of life that we're meant to live. But you and I must make the choices that are necessary to live in that freedom. What we must not do is make bad choices and then blame anyone else for the mess we get ourselves into. So we must accept responsibility. Second, no scripture. Now the majority of what Paul writes in this passage is something we're going to talk about next week in how to help others escape the snare of the devil. However, even though that's the primary focus, there has to be a way that we can learn so that we can help get ourselves out of the snare of the devil. And so as I was studying, there were a couple of of ideas that stood out to me. One is, it says that the servant of the Lord must be able to teach. And then, in verse 25, it talks about knowing the truth. Right? And so, when we talk about that, we must be able to teach and we must know the truth. Right? Now, the first idea, of well, the first thing I thought of with able to teach is that there are at least two requirements for being able to teach. Right? One is skill or ability. But the other is knowledge. Right? Knowledge of the subject at hand. Now, in my opinion, knowledge is the most important of the two. Because no matter how skilled or how gifted someone is in teaching, they cannot teach what they do not know. Right? I feel that one of my primary gifts is that of teaching. But if you were to put me in a classroom, hand me an algebra book, and tell me to teach a class, I could not do it. Right? Now, I could read the words from the book. 
I could say, well, the book says that x squared equals c3 times 4 equals 5. Right? Why? I don't know. The book just says that's the way it is. Right? There is nothing I could give beyond what the book said. I could read it. I might could study it for days so I could read it eloquently. I might could read it for weeks so that I largely had it memorized and I could say it while looking them in the eye and say it pointing and with convincing gestures. But in the end, they would get absolutely nothing out of my teaching because I could not elaborate on the problem, how to solve it, or or answer any questions they may have because no matter how eloquently I could speak, I do not know algebra. And there are no conditions under heaven or earth that would make it possible for me to be able to effectively teach algebra. In order to effectively, or in order to escape the snare of the devil, or help someone escape, as we'll talk about next week, we must know Scripture. We must know the truth. Now, knowing Scripture isn't merely being able to quote a few facts. Right, and, and I always want to be careful with this because I don't think it's ever wasted to know things about Scripture. If you can name the 12 tribes of Israel in order and which wife that they were they're the initial children, the head of that, that, that clan was born to, if you can name all of that in the right order, that's not wasted time and that's not wasted effort. But from my perspective, for this particular point, My question would be, how is that going to help you escape the snare of the devil? Because again, memorizing facts isn't the same as knowing a subject. I could memorize a lesson in an algebra textbook, but that would not make me know the subject. There is a difference. To know Scripture, we must have a good working knowledge. Of what scripture says particularly about areas where Satan is trying to snare us. Because when we talk about making provision for the flesh. If this was a place where we would just be ruthlessly honest. And go around the room and say what areas are you most tempted to make provision of the flesh. None of us really has to think. We know the areas we are most tempted by. We know the places we fail in the most. So those are the places we need to study. What does Scripture say about that? But this requires more than a casual reading. This requires us to study with the goal of knowing what Scripture has to say. Look at verse 15, chapter 2. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now there's three facets of this verse that I want us to see tonight. First, we're told to be diligent. Third, we're called workers. And third, we see that we are to be diligent workers in studying in regard to the Scripture. Right? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, the idea of rightly dividing the word of truth, the most basic understanding of that is to be able to correctly understand it and explain it. 
The reality is it takes diligent work to be able to correctly understand or explain Scripture. Like go back to the, the idea of knowing the, the 12 tribes of Israel and what, what wife they came from, the, the leaders came from. Right? Is knowing the names the same as being able to explain the significance of that story? I mean, why is that story about the 12 tribes in there? Why does it matter that there were multiple wives that Jacob had at that time? Right Now that's the point of the story. Not just that there were 12 children and that they became the leaders of the tribes of Israel, but that one of them would be the child of promise. And on and on, right? So we're not just seeking to know facts, but actually understand Scripture. Now for our purpose tonight, we need to properly understand Scripture because we're talking about how to personally escape the snare of the devil. Right? That is more than reading a devotion. It's more than listening to a sermon. It is constantly being in Scripture, seeking to learn all that you can. Now keep in mind the ways that Satan seeks to lure us into his snare. Through deception and temptation. How can we reject his deceptions? Well, honestly... Only by knowing the truth. Isn't that how you... I mean, that's the only way you'll know a deception. If you were to take a young child that had never gone to school and had never had a math class and you were the only teacher they had and you taught them that 2 plus 2 equaled 100, they would never know the difference until someday someone exposed them to the truth. The only way to see a deception... For what it is, it's by knowing the truth. How do we recognize temptation so that we can stay away from it? We know the truth. What does the Bible say about that? Look at I me, mean, even look up at verse 22. Lust. Lust is a major provision of the flesh that people make. So what does Scripture say about that? Flee youthful lust. And pursue righteousness, faith, and love with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Right? So rather than just saying, I'm not going to give in to lust, what do you do? One, you're to flee from it, but two, you're to pursue something good. And you're to have people in your life that are going the same way that you are to help you pursue righteousness in that way. Right? That's what Scripture teaches. How do, we, how do we avoid the temptation? We know what Scripture says. We know the truth. And if we want to escape the snare of the devil and stay out of the snare again, we must be diligent to put forth the necessary effort to know Scripture. And it is effort. I mean, that is the point that Paul is making in verse 15. Be diligent. Work hard. Because you're a worker. And it takes that effort to rightly divide, to properly understand Scripture. So know Scripture. And secondly, believe Scripture. Now that can seem basic. And it kind of is, but I actually kind of think it's actually pretty deep. Because there is a a huge difference between knowing Scripture and believing Scripture. You know, the reality is a lot of atheists know Scripture. I mean, they have 
many of them have studied the Bible enough that they can quote facts. They can even explain central doctrines of the Christian faith. Now listen to one of my favorite quotes. And you've probably said it before. Well, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that He rose again from the dead, and by His sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. That's a great quote. I mean, that is exactly right. And it could have been said by any conservative evangelical preacher or believer in the world. But it was actually said by atheist Christopher Hitchens, who's not only an atheist, he considered himself an anti-theist. And he made that quote, funnily enough, I guess, to someone who is professing to be a Christian. He's being interviewed by a liberal Christian magazine, and the, the person doing the interview said, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those, and, and I can't remember the wording that, that she used to explain how she wasn't like one of those. By one of those, she basically meant us. And he made this statement to her. I would say if you don't believe Jesus of Nazareth was Christ and Messiah, that He rose again from the dead and by His sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. I mean, that's a solid, solid, biblically accurate statement of the necessity of Christ, the importance of Christ. And He knew the truth. He knew enough of it to articulate the uniqueness of Christ for salvation. But he never embraced that knowledge as truth. He knew the truth. But it didn't help him in any noticeable or real way. Why? Because he did not believe what he knew. Knowing the truth without believing the truth doesn't really make a difference in our lives. His problem wasn't a lack of knowledge. It was a lack of faith. As we've already seen, we must study and know Scripture. But this study and knowledge won't do us any good if we don't believe it. Now, I'm convinced there are two aspects of belief in Scripture that must be present before the truth will benefit us in the ways that it's intended to. First, we must believe Scripture is right. And then secondly, we must believe Scripture is real. When I mean Scripture is right, I mean that it's right in what it says. That when it says that there is a snare of the devil, that's right. There is a snare of the devil that we must escape. It's right that there are youthful lusts and we must flee them. But also that it's real. And what I mean by real is that that really is the right way to do things. I'm afraid that many believers today see Scripture as a pie-in-the-sky kind of an ideal, but not the reality of how things can be and how things should be. But no, yes, you should flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, and peace with those who call the Lord out of a pure heart. But, I mean, you just really can't do that. Great example. Years ago, Britney Spears, before she went kind of off the rails, at one point in her life was a professing believer in Jesus Christ. And in one of her interviews, she made a statement. They asked her about being pure. 
And she said, what the book says about purity is right. But it's just not realistic to believe people can live that way. See, she believed it was right, but she didn't believe it was real. That you could actually live that way. What if Scripture is not a pie-in-the-sky ideal of how, wow, that would be wonderful if it worked out like that. But what if Scripture was really, that's really the way it was meant to be. That we really were meant to flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, peace, and faith with other people. What if when Scripture says that we can't escape every temptation because God makes a weapon, that's, that's not a... Boy, that would be wonderful, but that's the reality. There really is always a way out that we can escape. And neither Jesus and his use of Scripture, nor Paul, nor Peter, nor Jeremiah, nor any author of Scripture, though, none of them paint Scripture as a pie-in-the-sky ideal. They paint it as this is how the real world works. This is real. This is what you can do. This is what you should do. This is how your life should be lived. So do we believe Scripture? Do we believe it's right in everything it says, whether it's its moral standards, what it says about values and priorities and our attitudes and our speech? Do we believe it's right? Then do we believe it's real? Do we believe we really can live the way Scripture says we're supposed to live? Now, let's take the stuff we talked about last week. Right? Do all things without complaining and disputing. Right? So, that's what it looks like to surrender to the Lordship of Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To just do all things without complaining and arguing. And then let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also in the interest of others. So there, the Lordship of Christ, what it looks like to be surrendered to Christ there, not to be selfish in our actions or our decision making. Actively care about what's going on in the lives of other people. And then the willingness to put others ahead of ourselves when needed and when necessary. And then we looked at verse 23 and 24 of 2 Timothy 2. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Right, so the Lordship of Christ means not starting or taking part in foolish disputes or quarrels. Right, so that's what it is to live in the Lordship of Christ. So, do we believe that these things are real? Right, that, I mean, that's right. Is it right... Always do things without griping and complaining. Is it right to put others ahead of ourselves? Is it right to never get involved in foolish and ignorant disputes and not to be a person known to be a quarrel? I mean, do we believe it's always right to do all things, and that's what it says, without complaining and arguing? Do we believe it's always right to do what we do without any sort of selfish ambition? Do we believe it's always right to look out for the needs of others and not just ourselves? Do we believe it's right to always avoid foolish, strife-generating disputes? Do we believe that it's always wrong to quarrel? 
And again, these are just a few of the ones, these are just ones we looked at last week. Scripture speaks about so much more. Do we believe that's, that's the right way to live all the time? And if we do, then do we believe it's real? Do we believe it's possible to actually do all things without complaining and arguing? Years ago, I heard a guy talk about this. And he said, people look at that and they say, oh, that's not possible. We can't really do that. And he said, can you imagine if we took that mindset with other things? Right? Scripture says, you shall not kill. Oh, well, I just don't think I could ever go through my life without actually killing someone. Right? We don't do it to, to things like that. We can get to some things. And we can say, well, yeah, no, surely I would go without adultery. And surely I would go without murder. But when it gets to something like this, oh, no, I can't. There's no way to do that. But is it because that we can't? Or is it because that our flesh wants to? Do we believe that we can do all things without selfish motivations? Do we believe that we can look out for the needs of others and not just focus on ourselves? Do we believe that we can avoid foolish arguments? Do we believe that we can avoid quarreling? Do we believe that these things are right do we believe that these things are real? Or do we make excuses about why it's not right? Especially, if you're like me, in the times when you want to do it. But we must ask that and answer it. Do we believe it's real, that we really can Live the way Scripture says, or do we make excuses as to why we can't be live, we can't live those things out? Particularly, either after we have failed to do them, or when we don't want to do them. You know, the surest way to see that we believe God's way is best, it is to live it out. I mean, if if I say that God's way is best. But then I live as though my way is best. The reality is I believe my way is best. We don't believe what we don't at least try to live out. And we'll talk in a minute about we're not going to do any of this stuff perfect in this life. But if I don't at least try, I really and truly do not believe it. The surest sign we believe Scripture is when we obey Scripture. I think there are two critical verses or passages that illustrate this. Both in James. James 2, 21-26. That's the passage where James tells us that faith without works is dead. One of the main points James is making is faith without works really is not faith. Can faith without works, does that kind of faith save someone? Well, given that he calls it a dead faith, and faith brings life, then James's point is no. A faith that doesn't change us is not a legitimate biblical saving faith. Genuine faith always produces action. Always. When there are no actions motivated by faith, it is always because there is no faith. And then the other one is be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. 
There's two reasons this passage is so important. First is that it explicitly states the importance of obeying Scripture and not merely hearing or reading or knowing it. And it's not a big leap from faith without works is dead to be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. How do I know I have faith the Word is right and the Word is real? By being a doer of the Word. And not a hearer or a reader only. But a second reason this verse is important is because it shows us consequences for hearing without doing. And he says that you deceive yourself. When we hear without heeding, we make up excuses as to why this doesn't apply to us. Why we don't have to do whatever it is Scripture says. Only we don't call them excuses, we call them reasons. And we develop a set of reasons to explain why we don't have to do what Scripture says we're supposed to do. And these reasons are, are to convince people that we're still right. We're still okay. That no, we're not doing what Scripture says, but here's why. Can I tell you what I think? Going with the idea of deceiving ourselves. Do you know the first person we have to convince of that? Nice. We have to convince ourselves of that. The very first person I have to convince that I don't have to obey Scripture is me. And once I begin to convince myself of that, the next thing I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to convince you of that. I want you to believe I'm right by not doing what Scripture says. And we'll never escape the snare of the devil through self-deceived disobedience. And we'll never stay out of the devil's snare through self-deceived disobedience. We must believe Scripture enough to obey Scripture if we want to escape the snare of the devil and stay out of that snare. And then finally, we accept responsibility, know Scripture, believe Scripture, and then repent when necessary. None of us are going to perfectly live this out. And in this, we do live with attention, don't we? On the one hand... Scripture does say that we can resist the deception and temptation of the devil and avoid his snares. But, Scripture also says there are going to be times where we don't do it perfectly. But the best example is 1 John 2.1. Little children, I write this to you that you may not sin. But, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right. So, Scripture acknowledges the fact that we're frail. And that we're going to fail. But what we have to do is avoid two two extremes. One extreme is using our frailty as an excuse. Well, never going to be perfect, so I might as well. I mean, that's just how it is. We're never going to live up to it. Just go ahead and ask for, ask for forgiveness later. We can't just give in to defeat and deception like that. But at the same time, We can't go off in the other extreme and be just completely overcome by the fact that we fail, right? I I try, but I blow it. Oh, I'm a horrible Christian. If only I loved Jesus more. If only I had more faith. If only, right? There is a tension that we have to manage and live with. The tension is the power of the Holy Spirit, the promises of Scripture, the regeneration that has been done in us. We are able To recognize and reject deception and temptation. At the same time, our sinful nature is still there. It's still pulling. We still live in a sin-cursed world. 
we are going to fail at times. So what do we do? What do we do in those times when we make provision for the flesh because we did not put on the Lord Jesus Christ? We repent. We recognize what we've done and we repent of it. That's how we escape the devil's snare once we've been taken in. And really, as we're going to talk about next week, leading others to it, our goal in leading others is that they would know the truth and they would repent. Right? Repentance is kind of the key thing that leads us out of there. Now, repentance, as we've talked about many times, is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of mind. But now, it's a change of mind about God. And what that means in part is that we begin to say God's word, it's right. right? God's word is right and God's word is real. So a part of repentance for us, and so we can escape the snare of the devil, is that we change our mind and embrace that Scripture is real and it's right about everything that it says. And that this is true whether it speaks of values or priorities or attitudes or reactions or speech or thoughts or, or anything else. Anything Scripture says, it's right and it's real. That is a change of mind. And this repentance, it requires us to embrace whatever Scripture says about any area and say, that is the will of God. Living that out is what it looks like to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And not doing that is what it means to make provision for the flesh. That's a change of mind about that. It's a change of mind about sin. One of the easiest things for any of us to do is to justify our making provision for the flesh. I I mean, and I don't think I'm projecting. I know. I know it's easy for me. If I gripe and complain, I can give you a million reasons why my griping and complaining is a righteous thing to do. If I let selfish ambition drive me, I can tell you many reasons why that was a righteous decision. When I don't care about what's going on in the life of another, and I put myself so far above them, I can't be involved in their life, I can explain why that's the right decision. And when I get involved in ignorant and foolish disputes and I quarrel with people, I can explain why that needed to be said. And why that quarrel had to happen. But I don't think it's just me. I would imagine you can as well. So a change of mind about sin. Is to reject our justifications. It is to recognize that that is exactly what they are. That our justifications do not make what we did righteous. That instead they were self-deceived disobedience. And then to begin to do the things that God wants us to do. But a change of mind about sin is that we accept that any time we make provision for the flesh, that is always sin. That is always wrong. And we will never escape the snare of the devil until we do that. 
we can never live free of the snare of the devil until we do that. These four things are pretty basic. But I truly believe they are the keys for us if we're ensnared to escape and then to live. Accept responsibility. If I'm there, I got myself there. And there are things I must do to get myself out. Know the scripture. Make time to study. Not just read. Not just devotions. But study the word. To know the word. There are so many different ways to do that. And believe it. It is right in all that it says. And it is real in all that it says. And then when we make provision. Don't be overcome with despair. Don't make light of it as if it's no big deal. Pent and move out. We can escape the Satan's snare and we can live free of it if we do the things that God has told us to do. We're going to take time tonight and take prayer requests.